Hey guys, we are live for episode six of the First Strike Podcast, brought to you by FaceToFaceGames.com. And I'm, it feels like it's been a while that I've done this, but I've done this episode every week. Uh, joining me once again is basically our most popular uh, co-host, Mr. Robert Lombardi with the Army of Hamilton. <laughs> How's it going, Robert? What's up? What's up? Um, and also we got my, one of my favorite co-hosts. Brian Gottlieb, how's it going, Brian? Yeah, you need to say face. You know I can hear what you're saying, right? When you tell me my <laughs> other co-host is the most popular co-host ever. <laughs> I have feelings, KYT. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think he should be honest. That's what this show's all about, KYT. Just give up. it to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all about honesty. And uh, I got to appease. Uh, I'm being outnumbered by the Hamilton, Hamilton crowd. And every time I post in that uh, Facebook group, it's just uh, a million a million support. I just feel like a zillion times support from them. And uh, shout outs to Rob for, uh, for raising such a loyal group of uh, followers. <laughs> just wait, Rob. Someday I'm going to make friends and I'm going to have them come and show up. And they're gonna have <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, for this special Boxing Day episode, uh, I'm going to be giving away a $25 store credit to one of the lucky people watching the stream right now, uh, especially if you start commenting on the show as to if Rob or Brian want a certain debate, and then I'll randomize someone uh, from, from that list of people who are actively participating in the chat. So, so that's something to do. And um, probably doing something, maybe throwing out another $25 if I see a significant increase in our YouTube subscriber or Twitter following. So you follow us on First Strike Pod or our Facebook likes. So if if I know there's people supporting this cast, then uh, there's going to be another giveaway. So excited to see uh, people chime in as these guys square off. So our first topic is the hot hotness that just got released by Wizards themselves during the holidays, during Christmas, which is the Aether Revolt Masterpieces. Now, I myself am not don't have a high, like, strong opinion about them. It's one of those things where a lot of my other friends who are into the art and into collecting cards will Facebook message me a lot, especially since they know I'm the social media guy for face to face. Like, did you see that? But as a strictly competitive player, I've just frankly never cared. But Rob, I think you have a strong opinion about them. You want to talk about them. And uh, is there like a casual side to you that I don't know? <laughs> Yeah, for sure, obviously. So um, so I think there's really, like, two two kind of main discussion points uh, around Masterpieces. One is, like, should Wizards continue doing them? Is releasing them a good thing, right? Is it a useful thing for the game? And the second point is, like, specifically with Aether Revolt Masterpieces, was this list a good list, right? And kind of, like, what's in it that's useful and what's, uh, what's missing, right, that, that maybe should have been on that list. So I'll kind of talk about masterpieces in general first. So I think that they are uh, they are kind of a, a, a good thing for the game. Like it allows players to have that kind of excitement feeling when they're in that still in that phase of opening booster packs, right? And it allows them access to cards that they normally wouldn't get access to for newer players. And these cards are actually very valuable. So they can like you know if, if you're just like getting in, you've only been playing Magic for like let's say less than a year. And you open like a masterpiece uh, Lotus Petal or Soul Ring or, or Engineer Explosives or something, you don't really have like a use for that card, right? 
But you can like trade into a store for $100, $150 store credit and buy like most of a standard deck or you can trade it to some modern or legacy guy at your shop and get, you know, most of a standard deck or like a whole bunch of sweet EDH cards or, you know, kind of whatever you're into. So it allows people like a very quick way if they kind of like hit the lottery well to like just upgrade their collection uh, doing something that they were going to do anyways, right? And then it by having those expensive cards in the set, it lowers the value of everything else in the set, right? Because like the value of a box can't just be infinite. It has to be kind of like whatever the, you know, the, the EV of a box is kind of whatever, it, you know, people are selling it for, right? So once it goes uh, way above, then they start cracking it until everything just equalizes anyways. And you can see that with Modern Masters, right? Where that, that's a shortage of supplies and the box increases to the, to the EV of the set or the EV of a box based on the set. So I do think it's good. I think it keeps the prices of standard cards down, which is good for new players. And it ha gets them a way to hit the lottery and kind of like trade into a bunch of sweet cards uh, from what they open. Now, specifically the list for Aether Revolt, I actually think this is a really good list. I think it's actually better than the list for Kaladesh. Like you have a lot of really sweet uh, tournament playable cards like Ravager, Chalice, EE, Bridge, O-Stone, Ornithopter, The Sword, Shackles, Wormcoil, right? And there's a whole bunch of like EDH and casual uh favorites that are in there as well, and a couple throwbacks for, for Legacy, um, like Sphere of Resistance and, and Trinisphere or whatever. Um, so I, I think they actually did a really good job. Like, I don't think there's, like, a card in there that's, like, a super bummer to open, kind of like the way that the uh, the Gearhulks were. Like, I actually opened the red Gearhulk, and it's kind of like, eh. <laughs> man, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, right? I mean, hopefully someone wants it later or uh, it, it becomes a... <laughs> Comes a, a tournament staple for like a week, and I can try and get rid of it. But I think that they kind of missed um, a few cards off the list that are really notable. So Spellscape, almost every, actually, I think really every um, Chase artifact in Modern is actually printed as a masterpiece now, except for Spellscape. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know if they're like saving it. Like that could be. Uh, you could maybe read into the future, like. Maybe we're going to Phyrexia in the next year or two, and they know that it's going to be part of like the Phyrexian masterpiece series or whatever they're going to call it, right? Um, I think they maybe could have like printed Smuggler's Copter, but I guess they would have done it last set. Like they knew the card was going to be good, or maybe like the the Sky Sovereign or something like that. But other than that, like I'm pretty happy with the list. Like you can complain about one or two cards here and there, but I don't think like cards on that list for anyone. Uh, or like there's like Mind's Eye or whatever, like no one really cares about that card, or like Combustible Gear Hulk, no one cares about that card. So yeah, I think they did a pretty good job with this, and I, I, I'm excited to see like kind of how they're going to start grouping things in the future. They've had like some easy runs with lands and then artifacts, so I'm kind of interested to see like I don't know what Amonkhet could actually uh, hold in terms of the Masterpiece series. So maybe like Masterpiece Zombies or something stupid like that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure, but uh, they're doing a good job. Well, I, I would say I, I was super excited to just like decimate and destroy your arguments, but you did it for me, so I don't even have to put that much effort into it. You're welcome. You, you say that this is a way to, you know, let players kind of get more cash in their pockets, but you're exactly right. When you add these types of cards to the set, it devalues the other cards. So no actual money is being put in anyone's pockets, spiking it in. A certain direction and so that leads to more feels bad man you open your pack and your rare is you know a dollar rare and you get nothing out of it so while there's this spike in the masterpieces every other opening is devalued and if you listen to people there's a lot less kaladesh being opened than there was of the previous sets a, a lot of people are reporting that their draft fnms are down um 
And so now that the excitement of opening that masterpiece has kind of faded into the background, you realize that almost nothing else in the set is worth anything and you're not going to open the masterpiece anyway. So this whole format is devalued. The other thing is like you said, there's no bad um, opens for the masterpieces in this set, but there's two they haven't revealed yet. And those are the cards that are being printed in this set. Uh, there's two more masterpieces that haven't been shown yet. So it could just as well be combustible gear, gear Hulk 2.0. Uh, another completely unplayable card made into a masterpiece. So we don't know that yet. You can't say this is totally a safe thing. And I hate the impact that this has on professional level play. Think about how many times you find yourself in a situation where you're deciding your combat and you have to play around all of the available options. And so let's put you in, a, in the top eight of a draft pro tour, which don't exist anymore, but we're going to pretend like they do exist. We'll say a top eight of a, a limited GP and you're playing to win the tournament, and so long as your opponent doesn't have ensnaring bridge, you can act in a certain manner, you're guaranteed to win, but they have to have exactly ensnaring bridge, and then they have it. Is that a good story or a bad story? Like, maybe for the community, that's a good story, but for you, that's a horrible story, and I've, I've seen this personally. Like, I've seen draft games absolutely blown up by a masterpiece i remember when we were first testing kaladesh i went down to a like a draft weekend in dc and i was watching a game uh jason ford was playing someone and his opponent opened on turn one chrome Mox and did servo expedition and turn two played the master the guy who makes your servos bigger and can make servos at any point and the game was just over from that point like there was no way he was recovering from the tempo generated by a chrome Mox, and it's like well, that wasn't an exciting story. That was a stupid story. That was just a game of limited ruined by this masterpiece being included in the set. I, I just personally don't have any excitement for these anymore. I read the list of masterpieces. I was like, I've, I've seen these cards before. I know these cards. Like the masterpiece idea is now old. We've done expeditions. I'm just over it. I, 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 and this is going to be, if I'm fatigued after, this is now what, our fourth set? Of this type of thing where we had two sets of expedition and this is our second set of masterpieces i'm fatigued four sets in and they have said that this is going to continue from this point forward why like i'm just not excited anymore and like you said what's the next one going to be zombies are they going to have like blood dripping on the borders and that's going to be the cool thing where i'll be like oh look at my bloody zombie i opened like come on this is so lame and it's, it's not going to get better it's only going to get worse from this point forward so yeah, I mean, like, they're definitely not for me and you, right? <laughs> like, that's clear. They're not for, like, the, uh, the competitive grinder. Like, that, that, that's very clear. Because it, it does mess up uh, some place sometimes. It's, like, very, very, very rare that it happens, right? Like, it affecting you is way less likely than your odds of winning the event anyways. So it's, like, pretty insignificant. Um, and I kind of agree with the point you made against yourself that – yeah, it does create a very interesting moment for the community if someone gets beat by a masterpiece in a top eight, right? Because that is like a story that's worth telling and it does generate some excitement in the booth. So maybe that does generate like some some additional traffic or some additional like web conversation going on about this. So like, can you believe it? The guy opened Soul Ring. He was able to play like Flea Wheel Cruiser on turn two. Like he just destroyed the guy. It was a draft. Um, that That's like something that that I think gives magic, magic some visibility. So I, I think it's fine. The fact that it's like going to come up in a top eight GP draft like once every, I, I don't even know, I didn't do the math, but it's got to be like almost like a century or something, right? If you think about like how infrequent 
um, the uh, the masterpieces are and like how many drafts you need to do. I guess it's not a century like uh, I was thinking like one <laughs> one GP top eight a year, but it's probably like three or four years this is going to happen, right? So I, I think I think that's fine about the two unrevealed cards. I mean, you're kind of assuming that they're garbage because <laughs> they haven't been shown yet, but they held them back for a reason. So hopefully they held them back because they're sweet. Um, there's only two and not five, so we know it's not a cycle where like one of them has to be just some trashy red mythic that no one ever cared about, right? So I'm hoping that there's just like, uh, I don't know, like two very good artifacts, right, that can see a lot of uh, standard or, or modern play. Um, as far as like Kaladesh not being open too much and... Uh, I think that actually Magic's not on the constant rise it's been on, and that's why things are kind of teetering off. So I think just everything in Magic in general is a little bit lackluster, which is why Wizard is just like kind of throwing everything at the dartboard here and trying to see what sticks to continue the insane growth that they've had over the last decade. I'm not sure that like is or anything they're doing is really like you know, generate a bunch of packs to be opened or cause a bunch of people to start playing when they, when they weren't playing. Um, I think maybe the movie series is probably where they want to be to do that. Seems to have, like, really worked for Pokemon and, and other kinds of card games like that and introducing people to the game and then getting them at least interested in it to see if they're, you know, going to try something like that. So I'm excited to see what the what the movie, hopefully it's not garbage, uh, brings to the Magic player base. Um, have we yeah. heard anything about that movie for, like, the last two... I remember the announcement. I haven't heard no, one word about it since the... They're staying silent about it until, like, it's basically, I don't know, where they, they have content to show, I guess, right? So they're not I, filming, right? Like, they're nowhere near that level of completion. No, I think I think Mero said sometime in the middle of this year that they're about two years out from, like, its release. So I, I, I don't know, like, they're probably crafting an entire story and world around it and the cards that go with it. So that kind of all makes sense and they have, like, this, you know, the set launch and the movie launch and all that stuff's interconnected. It would be kind of weird if they're just like, and it's a movie about Urza, who like only 20% of you know and care about. So I hope you guys like it. It's going to be sweet, right? <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, hopefully they're they're taking their time with it so that it's good. If they screw it up, then Magic's is going to be in a real bad spot. I think it's going to be hard for them to come out of that because it'll really like tarnish the brand in general for the general public. So that was kind of a little bit off topic, but no, I, I like, I find this topic interesting. I, I think it's higher risk than people are assuming. Right. I remember when they first announced it, everyone's like, Oh, a movie, it'll be great. It'll be so much money. Everyone's going to be playing, but you're right. If they mess it up, it, it's not good. Although I, I guess they messed up the Warcraft movie. Right. And like that movie did amazing in China and like <laughs> Warcraft is still chugging along. So. Yeah, Warcraft's a different beast though. Like it there's, is. Yeah, the Blizzard people just love Blizzard product. That's yep. it. Like, you have a huge contingent of those people. This movie is about getting people that don't know what magic is into the magic's world sphere, right? It has so, to like, be. Otherwise, it's not worth making. The money's yeah, not there otherwise. Yeah, totally, so, totally. Yep. And Hasbro's has probably already milked Transformers for almost all they can get. So they got to move on to something else. <laughs> yeah, that's fully milked. <laughs> oh, Rob, one, one thing you, you started off about um, masterpieces brought back memories for myself when. I was actually excited when I opened a Birds of Paradise when it was 20 bucks. I don't know if you do had that feeling when you didn't have that much disposable income as a kid and you opened a pack and it was a $20 card. I was like hyped like crazy. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've like actually paid out of my pocket for three packs in my magic career. And uh, it was like two packs of Visions and one pack of Mirage, like when I first started playing. I forget what my second Visions rare was, but... My first rare was Crimson Hellkite. I was like 11, and I thought it was oh, sweet because it was massive. 
Yeah. And my Mirage Rare was Hammered of Bogarden. And, like, you just can't beat Hammer of Bogarden. So, like, at my local shop, we'd have these, like, stupid tournaments. I don't even know if there was a format or whatever. But I put Crimson Hellkite in the deck with Hammer of Bogarden. And I borrowed my buddy's Shivan Dragon. And I won. And I was like, sweet. I get, like, $15 or $20 store credit. I'm going to buy another Hammer. And then I won again because now I have two Hammers. Like, people couldn't beat one. They definitely can't beat two, right? And then so I, I just kept going down that path. Until I had four hammers, and then I got Baluvian hordes, and then I got Curse scrolls, and I got ball lightnings, and the rest is history. From there, it was it was easy money after that? <laughs> Can't lose. Sounds like a real competitive store. <laughs> in the beginning, it was it was not, but uh, Mono Red was sweet back in in Tempest Urza's uh, right before like right before Urza's block came out, and then it even was. a little bit afterwards. It was. <laughs> so I just I got lucky. If I would have opened like. I don't know, uh, Catacomb Dragon or some other, like, or Desertion, I, my path t- to magic would have been much worse. Hammer of, Hammer of Bogarden set me on the right path. <laughs> but that's what this feels like in a lot of ways, is, like, chasing the dragon of our youth when, like, it used to matter what rare I opened from my pack and, like, it could actually affect me and, like, cause joy <laughs> in my life. Like, I haven't been actually excited about a magic card that I opened in a pack since I was, like, 12 years old, and it'll probably never come back to me, regardless of how many masterpieces you create, but... I don't know, if I open a Soul Ring, I'd be pretty happy about opening a Soul Ring, I think. (laughs) Especially if it was in the top end of a draft. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's just funny how they had to make it, uh, like, Expedition. Like, before, a $20 rare would have excited me, but now it's got to be, like... Like Brian, you talked about how, how they have to, they're shifting it. So they're, they're, it's much more on the heavy side for, for some of the cards that you can open. And you need like that $200 high or something. It's the $20 high that yeah. I had before. Moving on to the, 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 our next topic, which is something that I expect people to to get tired of talking about like us bagging on modern all the time, but we keep getting modern uh, requests from, from many different people. And this one is if we were in charge of modern, would we ban or unban certain cards? Uh, what would our opinion be to improve the format? So we'll start with you, Brian, this, for this one. Just unban everything. Who cares? It's like, I, I would unban every possible card because is that going to be a good format? Probably not, but it's not a good format now. So it's like, why put these stupid restrictions in place? I understand that. Let me play like a few weeks of, you know, against Skull Clamp Affinity with Affinity Lands, and I'll probably be revising my statement very quickly. But I have such a loathing of the modern format as it currently stands that I just, any kind of shakeup I would embrace. And these small scale shakeups are not doing it for me. And actually, you know, when we were talking about our topics this week, we, we brought up this topic, and I only saw after we were talking about this that Patrick Chapin actually wrote about this today and talked about some dramatic changes that he would like to see in um, the modern ban list. And he talked about maybe, um, there's the, kind of like the old standby, eliminate all shuffling, all shuffle effects. Um, so I think his, one of his suggestions was like all shuffle effects, all cards with cascade, and then a bunch of cards for power level, like skull clamp and things like that. And, like, is his format degenerate? Absolutely. But so is current modern. Like, even the quote-unquote aggro decks are really combo decks. Like, they're not, there's no actual aggro decks anymore. There's, like, disruptive decks. Control's super lame. It's, it just needs a total, total rewipe. And I would be actually on board with as de- unquestionably degenerate 
as the format would be like just start over get rid of everything and see what happens okay so like the skull clamp decks absolutely will dominate then we can take skull clamp off and we're just like <laughs> let's just get back to square one until we can actually chisel out a format that's unique interesting and has the right type of games because if things are that broken I mean, at least we're, we'll be out in the open with it, right? Like, we pretend like this is a turn four format, and it's so far from that. Let's just get back to square one, and then maybe we'll end up with something decent after we go through all these permutations. You're crazy. <laughs> yes. yes. My, my uh, hatred of modern has driven me crazy. This is where I'm at now. I'm, I'm worried you might even be pro-Frontier or something, like, really off the wall like that. I don't know. Like, oh. we, might, we might have to have a chat. You said crazy, not insane. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so um, let me get to my points, I guess, so I can bring some sanity back to the cast. Uh, I mean, eliminate all shuffling. I, I think that's just kind of where the format is. I'm, I mean, Wizards has shown that they're fine putting fetch lands into standard, right? So it's not like they really... I mean, they, they don't want shuffling in the game. Like, they prefer not to have it, but fetch lands are, are very useful. They kind of actually like, define the format and what you're able to do whenever they're in it. So I really don't think they're going anywhere. Considering that like they just brought them back to standard, I can't see them them banning the whole uh, cycle in modern. And it's a cash cow, right? So like when they put them in a standard set, it just sells the set by itself. Like you could put literally <laughs> set other than the lands, no one cares, um, and they'll still buy it because the fetch lands are sweet. And like the the Zenicar ones are are worth a a bunch now, right? So like Misty and, and Scalding Tarn, I think they're they're like both well over a hundred, if I remember correctly. So um, I just don't see them banning it, just for that reason. This is a cash cow, uh, for sure. So, I, I mean, I, I, take, I took a look at the, the ban list today. I think there's a bunch of stuff that's, like, definitely never coming off it, right? So, you, Artifact Land Cycle, Pod, Blazing Shoal, Chromox, Cloud Pose, Dark Depths, Dig Through Time, Dread Return, Eye of Ugin, Hyper Genesis, Mental Misstep, Ponder, Preordain, Rite of Flame, Second Sunrise, Seeding Song, uh, Sensei's Divining Top, Skull Clamp, Stoneforge Mystic, Summer Bloom, Treasure Cruise, and Punishing Fire. These are all cards that are just, like, I don't care what you do to, to magic or, or the format or whatever. Like these cards are never getting unbanned. People should stop pretending like maybe they can get unbanned. Like, Oh, Stormforge might be okay. It's not that oppressive. No, no, no. It restricts future design space. The card is completely bonkers. It skips mana. Uh, if you're playing that color, you have to play that card. It's just like an auto include. And so a lot of these cards in the ban list are either auto moods or they like break fundamentals of magic that like they give you, Lots of uh, good card selection, so they reduce randomization, or they're like cheap, insane stuff into play, or they're just like super efficient, like just way too good. Uh, you know, they we can't have them in modern. The, the format can't deal with it. So when you say like unban everything, that would include these insane cards. <laughs> so I don't think <laughs> I don't think we're getting there. And I think the iteration on like your suggestion would take as long as it's taken already, because that's kind of where modern started. Like it didn't have a very big ban list. And we've gotten to where we are now. <laughs> so if you unban everything, I mean, you're probably just going to end up where you are now. And I think it would be fun, right? Because it's like I like playing Degenerate Magic. I played uh, Amulet Bloom for like a year and a half. And that's like one of the most Degenerate decks to hit Modern uh, in the last few years. So I'd be fine with it. But I think lots of people would have uh, not very much fun when they just like people are putting in to play like Emrakul on uh, turn two or whatever with Hypergenesis. Uh, round after round. So, like, stuff that could maybe come off that I think has been on there for different reasons, either because they were way too efficient or way too oppressive at that time, but things have really changed, and a bunch of cards have been banned or unbanned since then. 
that would warrant these cards maybe being considered for inclusion back in the format. So stuff like Bloodbraid Elf, I don't think it's too powerful anymore. Like Modern is doing a bunch of other very powerful things that like a four mana 3-2 haste that puts another random card uh, with three or less casting costs from your deck into play is not the insane card it was uh, two years ago or, or three years ago, whenever they banned it. Then there's Deathrite Shaman, which was like an auto-include for a bunch of decks. But I mean, Noble Hierarch is kind of like almost an auto-include in those decks anyways, except for Jund. And Deathrite Shaman does like help a bunch of fair decks combat a bunch of unfair decks like Dredge and stuff like that. So I, I think like I, if anything's like maybe not coming back, it's probably Deathrite Shaman. The card is too is too efficient and like kind of warps the format around it. But I mean, if they want to put something in that'll really shake up what's going on, I think that's a card to consider. And then maybe like Glimpse of Nature or Green Sun Zenith. Like Alice has kind of been nowhere. You might be uh, as crazy as I am. And <laughs> I think Glimpse of Nature is probably too much, but I think Green Sun Zenith is fair to come back. Like the, these, these like green-based creature decks that are mid-range are like not where you want to be in the format right now. And I think like maybe something like Green-White Hayers could could be a, a like a tier one contender or like Bant or something like that. So I, I think it's reasonable. I think Jace can be unbanned for sure. Uh, I said that for like at least a year. I don't think he's doing anything overly powerful. People just don't like losing to him, which is why I think he's still on the ban list. But I, 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 I think he he gives like the Grixis decks and the Jeskai decks a reason to act like a reason to bring that deck to the tournament, right? Like he is a finisher that you need. And he controls the board in a way that those decks need to do it uh, for four mana. Um, and then I, I think Twins probably fine to unban. Uh, it, I think banning it didn't really accomplish what they wanted to, and Jit can probably be unbanned too. Like without Stoneforge Mystic, Jit is not insane. And, you know, there's already a bunch of... There's way too many creature decks in Modern now as it is. So I think JIT will kind of, like, bring that down to a level where, like, you only have the really good ones in play. Um, stuff that probably should be banned, or at least consideration, is, like, Gitaxian Probe. The card's just, like, too ubiquitous in decks that have no business playing it. And it, it's, like, not really an offender that's doing anything powerful. It's just, like, has no business being a card. It's just not doing anything that, like, non-blue decks should do, and it's not something you should be able to do for zero mana. Uh, and two life, right? Which usually doesn't matter in these decks. So, like a lot of these insane combo decks, like the Team or Battle Rage decks, are all built around being able to play Probe. If you get rid of it, then those those decks take a significant hit, and then that's going to shake up the meta game enough. Um, Mox Opal is probably in consideration. I don't think it's ready yet, but I think there will be a, a day where Mox Opal gets banned. It'll make Affinity too good. They'll want to slow it down. I mean, Affinity can really only get better, right? Even Stony Silence doesn't take that deck completely out of uh, competitive contention. So I can't think of very many worse cards that, that you can play against that deck. And the last one I think that actually definitely should get banned is Become Immense. I think uh, one green mana for, for 12 damage is, is too much. Um, that's, I guess, that, that's where I'm at on the ban list. So I'd like to see at least Probe go um, and Become Immense. That'll really shake up where these, like, creature-based combo decks are um, and change stuff around. And I would like to see maybe, like, Jace... And Bloodbraid Elf and Jit come off the ban list. Um, I, I think that kind of gives you the shakeup you need without being like completely off the rails, <laughs> just like unbanning everything and letting people go nuts with like Dread Return and Hypergenesis for six months. So I'll, I'll come back and uh, we'll pretend for a while that I'm not insane and give you like, I guess if like if my job was actually to manage this ban list, the responsible thing I would do. And that would be to, I would unban Punishing Fire and unban Jace. And I think that opens up um, 
because I, I if it was up to me i'd really want to manage through unbans and not bans i, I want to ban as little as possible with an actual recognition that you probably do need some bands to have an even close to reasonable format. Um, but I, I think if you unban, due to the nature of combo in modern right now, unbanning Punishing Fire would actually do a lot to the control decks to be able to mitigate combo. Uh, essentially, they, don't, they just don't have any real option to do so. Um, I, I think being able to pick off um, Ink Moth Nexuses, Glistener Elves, Kiln Fiends, uh, Monastery Swift Spears with a source of recurring card advantage is exactly what those decks are looking for. I understand as a magic card, it's kind of unfair and oppressive, but so is what the other decks are doing, essentially. And if the broken attacking decks, basically, if the attacking decks are all broken, then you have to give control broken tools to answer those attacking decks. So I'd like to see Punishing Fire in play. I think it would be interesting. We've never had Punishing Fire in the modern format. It's not like something that started off and, and was added eventually. It's controllable. I mean, Rest in Peace is a great graveyard hate card. There's things like Surgical Extraction, Extirpate. Um, so it's not like it, it's without answers. Um, and even like Punishing Fire is actually a card I like in Legacy a lot um, when, it's, when it's good. Like it's a great metagame call to play a Punishing Fire deck in certain circumstances. When Delver's out of control, uh, you know, I, I want a lot playing the Jund Punishing Fire deck when Delver Dig Through Time was super popular. Um, but now I probably wouldn't show up to a Legacy Tournament with a Punishing Fire deck. So it kind of serves as a check to when the format moves in this way. And it's something that's sorely missing in Modern right now. So, so that's my actual... If I was actually in charge of the list, that's what I would do. I would unban Punishing Fire. I would unban Jace. Jace is, like, like you said, I think that was a fair assessment. I think it's people hate losing to Jace. You feel kind of helpless. It's unquestionably one of the most powerful cards ever, but this is one of the most powerful tournament formats we've ever played. Again, powerful threats deserve powerful answers to keep things balanced. So I would let Jason Punishing Fire have some time in the sun. Um, my biggest candidate for a ban right now, like I said, I prefer not to ban. I think your reasoning behind Gataxian Probe is very sound. That's a bonkers magic card. There's no reason for it to exist. Um, I am probably most offended by... Golgari Grave Troll, I think. It's something that was on the ban list before. Nobody missed it when it was not around. Now that it's back, it's like, obviously it only enables one deck, really, but I don't think that deck is good to have around, like, in terms of both playing Magic and um, watching Magic. I think that when people watch Dredge be played, it's so unintuitive that it kind of creates this really weird board state. And, you know, people often line their graveyards out in front of them. And if you're just watching and you're a novice, you're like, what is happening here? This actually makes, this doesn't even look like a game of magic being played. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's where my band would lie. Um, but modern needs to shake up, man. It, something has to change for me to get reinterested in the format. Cause I, I really have no desire to play it whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the format's fine. I think it could be better. I, I, th I mean, I think it's playable. I don't think it's unplayable. I think that it's very, the, the problem is that it's very hard to, like, there's no deck that has a target on their back. This is like, to be able to at least go 50-50 with this deck, right? And when Twin was around, like, you had that. So, like, you could either play Twin, and then you would be, like, between, like, you know, 40 and 60 with everything. And if you were a very good Twin player, you could eke out another 5 and 10% where, like, you don't really deserve it just because, like, people are going to play poorly against you. But if you're also a very good player at whatever you're playing, 
then like you can eke out another five to ten percent against twin if they're not familiar against like you know how your deck is supposed to operate right so like when i first started playing bloom i would just get crushed by twin i was like oh, this is a hopeless matchup like i'm not even gonna bother sideboarding anything to deal with blood moon and 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 uh and and the, the twin combo in general, just because, like, they're just going to crush me. And, like, by the end of that year, like, like, I felt favorite against twin. Like, I would beat it more than 50% of the time because, like, I really knew what they were trying to do and when I should be doing my stuff to, like, maximize my opportunity to just kill them. And, like, once you get ahead with that deck, then it's, it's obviously over, right? Um, so I don't think Modern has that right now. There's too many decks to be, like, just good to know every matchup which I think is frustrating people, but I think that all of the decks are kind of interesting, and that's that's a decent place to be, at least, <laughs> even though it is, like, a little more casual than, than competitive. But- yeah, I mean, people love it. People love Modern. That's, that's absolutely indisputable. On the whole, the general base of players is super excited about Modern, and obviously I don't fall in that camp, and I strongly disagree with them, but... <laughs> On the whole, people are very excited about modern. So I guess deck diversity is a huge selling point to them. I, people, I find in modern people take ownership of their deck, right? Like they're like a merfolk guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. They really like. <laughs> I'm like, no, no. I'm playing the most broken deck, or the yeah, deck yeah. that needs to beats the most broken decks this week. That's Me it. being those are my... kind of a sociopath, I'm unable to form those bonds with my deck. I just hate all forms <laughs> of magic as a whole. So I, I don't make that same uh, attachment, and maybe that's what I'm missing out on. Uh, maybe I'm the problem, not modern. Let's say <laughs> We've come to some very serious realizations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert, one last question on this topic before we move on. Um, what's worst, uh, what do you think is worse, losing to Jace or 8-Rack? Oh my god, if I lose to A-Rack, I would be so much more mad at myself and my deck and maybe magic as a whole and possibly the universe. Like there's just there's not a lot of decks that I would play that would that A-Rack would have a favorable matchup against me. So I'd be upset maybe for that reason at least. Um But I I don't know, like the deck is just so bad that losing to it feels worse than feeling hopeless against Jace. Like, at least Jace, like, you had the first three or four turns to kill them. So, like, it's not it's not like they didn't give you the opportunity, right? And they right. tapped out maybe on turn four. So, like, if you can't kill them when they tap out on turn four, you're probably doing modern wrong. I, I mean, that's why I think Jace can be unbanned. You tap out on, on turn four and... <laughs> GG's. <laughs> um, Brian, you share the same... Uh despise of eight, uh, for 8-Rack than, than the rest of us? So, I actually, after, after the Pro Tour where I played Ad Nauseam combo in the modern portion, did very well. I went 8-1 and won the Pro Tour. I came back that next week and had a old form PTQ where like you just have to you know, win the PTQ. And the first two rounds of that PTQ, I got paired against 8-Rack. There's no worse matchup on the planet for Ad Nauseam. You literally cannot win against 8-Rack ever under any circumstances. Um, so I have a particular hatred for 8-Rack. It was one of those things where, like, you bring this plebby 8-Rack deck to this tournament. How could you possibly make that decision? And they absolutely mopped the floor with me. So, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd take losing to Jace a million times before losing to 8-Rack. All right, so... I mean, unbanned Jace. If 8-Rack is viable in the format, people play it. Let's, let's just unbanned Jace. Yeah, that's the answer. 
That's I think Kay White's been beating to eight rack recently, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I've been beaten by eight rack. I mean, I and I watch games with it where just uh, my friend Rob Anderson played it against against it at uh, face face games open, and it just becomes a top deck war where he won because he had raging. He has like his third raging ravine that didn't die to a third sacrifice effect. So the game itself was not interesting to watch. It was just like. Which threat is going to stick? There's no strategy. So um, typical modern is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it just like that part was just tough to walk. It wasn't like there was no no thinking. He just like play raging ravine tap, like attack with raging ravine, like draw a card and okay maybe it's Bob and he plays it instead of attacking, but there weren't uh, much consideration there. So. Enough about modern. We're going to move to a topic that I've always wanted to talk about since the beginning of the show because it's such a generic topic and it's one that's not really um, based on recent events. It's more of a general knowledge thing. I, I've, I've asked uh, these guys to tell us. Um, the topic is tell us what's like one thing, the, the best way to improve at Magic because there's a lot of different opinions. When I started up, it's just like people at FNM would just tell you to like just keep playing, just keep practicing, or go on MTGO, go on Moto. But if there was one piece of advice that you could give someone, uh, like someone in Hamilton, Rob, to ascend into uh, the GP top eight guys that both of you are, and uh, some of you were really close to PT top eight multiple times, right? Uh, what, would, what would be like the one important piece of advice, Robert? Yeah, so I, I'll give maybe two pieces of advice. One is like something tangible that the viewers can actually take with them maybe and apply directly. Um, it'll be useful for them at the GPs. And the other is like the more broad statement <laughs> that everyone kind of gives. Like, um, I think that, that people, they, they think they're not making mistakes when they're playing. Uh, and they feel that almost like uh, every game they lose is out of their control. Like, oh, yeah, I lost. There's nothing I could do. It's like that's very, very rare. Like that's uh, – when there's nothing you could do, that's the exception where it's like you keep a hand and it's like three two drops, two lands, and two three drops. And you're like, and you're on the draw, and you're like, okay, sweet, it's limited, right? You're like, okay, I mean, I have to keep this hand. I can cast, like, I can play five spells or five cards out of my hand, and if I draw one land, I, my whole hand is live, right? It's like, so I can really beat down. That's what my deck's supposed to do. Cool, like, I'll, I'll keep. And you just like draw three drop after three drop after three drop, and you never hit your third land. And eventually, they start playing four and five drops, and you still haven't hit your third land until it's like the turn before you die. And then you draw your third land, obviously, and you're like, okay, cool, thanks, deck. Like, you definitely got me with this hand. Like, it's not a hand you can mulligan, and it's definitely not a hand you could have won with, right? Uh, you just, like, couldn't cast any spells and couldn't get there. So, like, I, I think you can get caught there, and that's really, like, one of the only spots where you can, you don't have the opportunity to outplay your opponent, right? But in almost every other scenario, there's lots of, like, medium hands that people don't mulligan, that they probably could or should have, especially given some of the circumstances around it, and that's going to kind of lead into my other point. But uh, that's like the start of it, right? You keep a hand that's like, you know, uh, two four drops, a five drop, and four lands. Like, that's not really keepable limited hand in most circumstances, right? Especially not in Kaladesh. So there's definitely something you could do. So I think that people, they, they use Magic's variants as a way to, like, 
explain away the fact that they didn't take all the advantages they could have to try and win the game. And like even the way they attack or how they block or even like bluffing something or using a removal spell too early and they're like, oh, well, like I was going to take three. I had to do it. It's like, yeah, but you know like from game one that he had this card in his deck and you can't deal with it. Like if you just draw any two drop, you can deal with a stupid three two. So you don't really need to use like your tiny taking clues on it or whatever. He's kind of a bad example. But there's like a lot of ways that that can play out. And like when you're playing the game after that, you can feel like, oh, well, like, I don't know. There's nothing I could do. Like he had a creature, I killed it, and he just drew another creature. Like, and I didn't draw any more removal. Like, woe is me. And that's not really kind of the way it goes. So then my more tangible point is that at GPs, I think, and I see a lot in, in the, like my play group or the people that ask me for advice a lot. They keep really loose hands early rounds of the tournament. And I think that that is very, like, it's very wrong to keep loose hands anyways, but it's, like, very, very wrong to keep loose hands in the beginning of a GP. Because, like, you're playing against people on average who are, if you're good, likely much worse than you, right? So you should be able to eke out a card or two's worth of advantage over the course of a game, especially in limited. So if you're keeping a week seven where it's like you need to draw something to get there, I will just always mulligan that at a GP. And like my GP day one records are very good. And it's just because like I am not willing to keep a mediocre hand until day two. Or like until I need to essentially, right? Whereas like if I'm playing against someone very good, like say I get paired against Owen Turtonwall round four, it's like, yeah, I am more likely to keep a kind of sketchy seven, I don't think that, but I don't think I'm going to get that card out of him, right? Like, there's going to be no opportunity where he's like, attack with a 2-2, two -two, and I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll block with my 3-3. Three -three. It's like, boom, pump spell. And I'm like, yeah, harness lightning, I guess. Like, like, what are you doing? Like, you, I blocked, like, you thought that that was going to work? Like, no, that's never going to work, you know what I mean? So, like, he's just not going to do that, and you're not going to be able to get that two-for-one from him, right? But a lot of the players you play on day one, you will be able to get that two for one. They'll even give it to you multiple times throughout that that uh, the event, or like it, that match, rather. So like I, I, I'm definitely more willing to mulligan uh, medium hands on day one and up to like the later rounds of day two, especially if I'm playing against someone I think is much worse than me. So if you see me mulligan aggressively, it's probably because I think you're terrible. <laughs> I don't need the extra cards to win. I just need a decent hand. What was your tangible? Uh, you the tangible was the mull the mulliganing. Like, okay, okay. Be, be like you if you if you're if you're very good, uh, especially like day one. Like I think you should be mulliganing more aggressively to hands that definitely let you play magic. Because if you get to play magic on day one, especially if a limited GP, it's very likely you're going to win. Like people are just on average very bad at sealed deck, and they're very bad at knowing the format, knowing all the cards. So if, you like, if you've done your homework, there's no reason to take that risk. Obviously, if you haven't done your, your homework, then yeah, be risky. Like You kind of need to get lucky to win anyways, right? So, But I mean, if you've done your homework, then you shouldn't rely on luck. You should try and rely on, on outplaying your opponent, and they will give you the opportunity to do that for sure. All right. What do you think, Brian? I, I think it's so hard to give one way... To, to focus on a single way to improve at Magic, because Magic is such a complicated game. But I will do my best to give one answer, even though it's a bit of a cop-out. And the answer is study. Just study. And, you know, people think you have to play a million games of Magic to be great at Magic. Playing a million games of Magic will certainly make you better at Magic. 
but it's not the requirement for being great. I, I play very, very little magic. I, I don't, I'm not trying to qualify myself as great, but I'm better than average, certainly. And I play very, very little magic, but I think about it all the time. And that's not just thinking about um, what deck am I going to play this weekend? That's thinking about games I've played in the past. That's thinking about um, sideboarding plans. If you've ever played against me at a tournament, you'll see that almost always I come with a written list of sideboard instructions. And that's not because I can't memorize a sideboard plan or because I am not capable of adapting on the fly. And I often do and deviate from those plans, but that's just time I spent thinking about my deck, getting to know my deck, thinking through matchups, visualizing how games play out that I win. Um, and, and that's part of the study aspect too, is that the more you think about magic, the more you're able to understand that some games are only winnable by making that high risk, high variance play, you know, at, attacking into or, or blocking as if they don't have the pump spell, because that's the only possible way you can win that game. The more you're thinking about the game as a whole, um, the more likely you are to identify those type of lines. And, and I find there, there's two places where I think I get my edge from. The first is in sideboarding. I think I often have better sideboard play. I, I just think sideboarding in tournament magic on the whole is a extremely deficient people do a really poor job of it and if you focus more on your sideboard plans um, you'd probably have better results so that's one spot where i get my edge and the other is in finding ways to win what some people would perceive as unwinnable games and that goes back to to rob's point looking for that one little thing never accepting this was a game i couldn't win i was destined to lose this game never accept that i remember a game maybe my best personal example of that I was playing the WMCQ a couple of years ago in the top eight, and I was against Steve Rubin, a very, very good player. And I was playing a blue-black control deck against his Abzan deck. And I'll try to keep the story brief, but I draw my opener. It's crap. I ship it. I draw my six at six lands. Now, hitting your land drops is extremely important, um, but I know that if he has any kind of aggressive hand, I'm just absolutely boned. So I keep the six lands. I think I draw a land for my first card. And when it comes time to play my third land, I kind of have my comes into play tap land in my hand and I kind of like feign it down towards the battlefield a little bit. And then I kind of catch it, make sure it's low enough that he could see it, but I haven't put it in play and then go, oh, actually, I don't want to play that land. And I play an untap land. I have no counter spell in my hand, but if he takes this turn off, I have possibility to draw into my gas. And I could tell he goes down and he goes into the tank and he's thinking about playing his four drop spell, which is probably like a siege rhino or something super impactful. And he debates and he just passes the turn. And then I draw gas off the top of my deck and I come back and win the game. But if I don't give him pause to think about whether I have that counter spell on turn three, he runs me over in that game and I absolutely have no chance. And someone who was watching from his side after the game said to me, he was like, he had walked around to my side during the game. He's like, I wondered how long you're going to get away with bluffing that counter spell. Because I don't think he actually played a, a spell the next turn either. I think he took another turn off. Um, so just little things like that, little wrinkles where that game should have. I should have just been complaining to someone afterwards, right? Like, oh, I had to keep six lands and I just drew more lands and I couldn't win. But I thought and found the play I needed to make to actually have a chance of winning that game. So those are my tips. I realize that's not kind of like one thing, um, but it's as close as I can get. So you're going to have to take it. I like it. I like it. I mean, lots of good advice here. This moves on uh, nicely to my next topic, which is something I'm 
again, uh, shout-outs to Doug Strong. I'm personally very invested in emotionally, which is the uh, state of strategic content because I don't think things have changed much. And, and um, as someone who has subscribed to things like poker training sites before, it seems like once one site comes up with like an established model of articles here, videos here, everybody starts to copy even the same registration fees and, and same type of schedule. And here, I think since I even heard about SCG, the model hasn't changed much. We've seen like addition of more videos, but no one has really given given fresher content. For example, like I've seen LSV, I think LSV was part of this project with, with other pros. They sold eBooks on different draft formats. And I'm not sure if those were successful at all. Then we've had um, videos from poker that I would like to see, which is something that Wesco offered. I don't know if he still offers it. I think he offered for like, uh, was it $25 or something lower to like watch and analyze your entire match? Like just sweating your entire match and analyzing your play. I don't think you see that type of content. At least it's not done frequently at all. We're like LSV would maybe ask a random to send in video of them playing a league or some sort of important match and have them go through uh, the play. I think AJ Soccer was the first one with his AJ TV to try to go back uh, in the past and look for really high-level pro, pro tour matches and then analyze their plays. And that received a lot of good feedback. And uh, when I did that one time, again, because it's a lot of work, I did that with Alex Hain. We analyzed his game against Raptor, uh, leading to Haynes' eventual GP uh, Vancouver win. It was like a blue-white versus blue-white uh, matchup. We went through like his lines, his high-level thinking, and uh, even Raptor apparently watched it and loved it. So, so those videos were really well-received, and I think are extremely educational compared to the stuff that we have now that either be, pros are not giving up what they're playing or uh, not really, or they're just told by editors what to write. They're like, oh, there's too much blue-white flash content, so write about this other deck that you're playing, which don't, you we all know you don't really care about, but let's just write it so we can generate some hits. And so I think it's kind of stale. And then, of course, um, we've got all these guys, these pros that I feel phone it in by doing the decks of the week article. They just, like, pick eight decks that have done well that have done well out of a hat and then like write two lines saying what they think about the deck which gives me nothing as a competitive player so again a lot uh from me when i i always like throw a mess to brian at, <laughs> to conduct <laughs> after i talk um and now we have like the other thing i want to talk about is like scg is the only place with premium um articles and we i see in other industries where Again, poker is obviously a bigger and more money-focused thing, so it's obvious that uh, it's more natural that they have subscription-based stuff. But you know, like we've there's chess. Chess has coaches, paid coaches, and, and we've seen paid services. And the only reason I guess stores are reluctant is because CFB offers free content, and of course the TCG offers free content. So there's no incentive for people to pay. Uh, for certain types of content. But for me, maybe I think that it's because no one's really making the content that would take a lot of effort to make and that is highly educational. Uh, so Brian, um, 
but I don't, I don't know where you want to start, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. Just agree I, with KYT. Let's call it a show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will start by defeating your argument, KYT, as I, I often am forced to do. The reason you don't see stuff like that and the reason why this comparison is a little challenging is because when you go to a poker site, you're going for the strategy and that's where they make their money from. When you go to Channel Fireball, they want to get you there with strategy, and then they're going to make their money by selling you cards that you find in those strategies. It, it, I mean, it's a totally different payment model, right? It's like one, it, basically all of these articles are designed as advertisements to these stores. Um, and that's fine. I, I understand why if I owned um, you know, Channel Fireball, my articles would be designed to sell the cards on my website because that's where my bread is buttered. Now, do things have to be this way? No, they don't have to be this way. I just learned, I've been teaching myself the Pokemon TCG. You can laugh if you would like to do so. Um, but I just, I love games. I love TCGs. And honestly, it's a pretty interesting game. It's got some wrinkles to it. One thing about its strategic content is that there's no free content out there. You really, I mean, maybe YouTube, but I, have a hard time watching um, the YouTube videos on the Pokemon TCG. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm sure you can guess why. Why uh, some kid? <laughs> sometimes it's strategy. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly like you know, 20 year olds. Um, but I'm an old man. I, I don't. I, it's hard for me to relate to 20 year olds. I think. Um, but anyway, the, most of the Poke, the good Pokemon content is behind a paywall, and. Articles are not published on a daily basis. They're kind of like when an article is ready, it's published. Sometimes there's four in a week. Sometimes there's none in a week. Um, but one thing all the articles have had in common, and I'm just speaking of one specific site where I get the bulk of my information, is that they're long form. They're, they're very, very long articles. They're very detailed. They're very well thought out. And... I feel like I'm getting my money's worth from what I'm reading. I don't necessarily always feel that way with, well, certainly not with free content, right? I mean, I guess I am getting my money's worth because I'm not paying for it, but I'm not interested in it is what I'm saying. I very rarely re read free content anymore. Um, and there's some writers on the SCG premium side where I absolutely feel like I get my money's worth. You know, you talked about pros who withhold their deck lists. Well, Go read Jerry's articles every week. Who he's been giving his deck list for literal years now, openly, um, and you you always get something from his articles, unquestionably. Um, but there's other other authors that you feel like they're phoning in for a paycheck, and it's kind of a sad state of things. I think we've settled into a model that we're all comfortable with, and this is how content is produced, and it's just the way things are. I would love to see some sites experiment. With getting away from it, um, you know, a super premium site where the, the subscription's a little bit more expensive, but you have people who are not just great magic players, but great magic writers behind your paywall. And there's a very big distinction there because, I mean, look, I don't, I'm not disparaging these guys. They're ten times the magic players I am, but the I can't tell you the last time I read a Owen Turtenwald or a Seth Manfield article and was like, wow, I really took a lot away from that because I, I just don't. I don't get that kind of in-depth exploration from their articles and you know that's fine they are still i'm sure getting tons of hits and that's what they're really there to do get hits sell cards um, but i would love someone to take the leap and have a a kind of like a, a higher paywall 
and just some really, really top-notch content because it does seem to work in these other TCGs. The Pokemon TCG with a much smaller audience, uh, at least in terms of like the high-level tournament players, obviously this site exists and is successful. So I don't know, maybe someone will go out there and try the model. Maybe KYT is uh, positioning to be the master of the highest level of magic content. But uh, yeah, things are a little stagnant right now. I'd like to see a shake there. Yeah, so I was uh, really on board with when KYT said that we might be talking about this topic tonight. I'm like thinking about it in my head, like, yeah, you know, there's tons of free good content out there. Like you have CFB, SCG has some reasonable stuff on the select side. You have TG player, um, you know, a bunch of stuff. Wait, 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 stop you. There's a Tron, there, there's a, a ton of Eldrazi Tron articles. You gotta, you gotta mention that. On, on Mana Deprived, I, I specifically, I think. So if you're looking for Eldrazi Tron top-ups, uh, head over to manadeprived.com, and you, you'll get your fix. I, I actually, I think KYT's doing a, a Tron article per day through the Christmas break, maybe. That's, <laughs> that's part of his uh, blockbuster uh, <laughs> surprise for everyone for the new year. But, um, but yeah, like, after listening to KYT kind of go on about how it's stale and, and, you know, Brian's points as well. I kind of actually agree. Like I do think that there is a lot of content out there and there's a lot to be learned for someone that's like, maybe, I don't know, like if you say that like Owen and the rest of the guys that are very good, I, I don't know why I keep using it, but like, whatever, like platinum level pro player X is like a 10, right. On like the magic uh, level and like me and Brian and KYT or whatever, like people like us, like Doug are like at a six or a seven. And like when we're hot, we're like at an eight and when we're bad, we're like at a five or whatever. Then um, I, I don't think there's a lot of room for us to grow from those articles. It's more like, okay, like, yeah, you know, does this deck look interesting? Like, is this, is this a reasonable, like maybe I'll take it for a spin. And then like me as a reasonable magic player, like I'm just going to go come to my own conclusions about the deck. So that that's like what I use the articles for. Just like, what are people talking about? Um, which is like, you know, that because because what people are talking about, that's what other people are going to play. So if I see lots of Marvel articles, lots of Blue White articles, and lots of Delirium articles, then like it's more likely that people are going to play those decks. When the articles start shifting to like Mardu vehicles and like Teamer, uh, Dynavolt Tower control decks and stuff, then like you're going to expect more of those decks at your metagame because like your, your LGS is going to shift more with these kind of like week to week articles than uh, the large events will. So, like, I use it as a way for me to, like, not have to really do a lot of metagame research and then come to my own conclusions about the format um, so that I'm doing, like, I guess, like, maybe useful testing when I go to the LGS. I don't just show up with green-black when everyone's playing Marvel because I was like, oh, I, I thought everyone was on blue-white this week. Uh, whoops. <laughs> well, that was fun. Okay, I'll see you guys later. And just like, oh, two drop. Um, but, yeah, so, so like, uh, I mean, that, that's why I use it for as a mid-level player. Um, I think that the, the very beginning players, they use it as a, as a way to, like, just know what a deck list is, what deck list is good, so they can bring it, and they at least have, like, that's why everyone at your LGS, if they want to, they at least have a good deck, right? Like, their list is at least, at least reasonably tuned. So they're playing with, like, something that does, is, like, concentrated around some, some theory or some, some strategy. So, like, that is very helpful for them, right? Um, it's not going to make them a better player by reading it for sure, but at least they'll uh, not just get like completely wrecked by bringing like some garbage homebrew or like uh, you know some junk they put together because they like weren't sure what the list is. So that, I do think they serve a purpose. Now, as far as like what are we going to do about it, like where we're stuck? Um, yeah, like it does suck. It sucks for everyone that's mid level and even like the good pros. Like no one is getting better from any of the stuff that's out there right now, uh, unless you have like a a very large headroom to grow. So 
I, I think that's like a, a probably a very invested player base um, that would actually probably pay money, but you know, to see stuff behind a paywall and actually have people that are like dedicated to producing something useful, something people can learn from. And like, I taught at a college for like five or six years. And like, when I think back at the articles, like, yeah, they're not written in a way to teach people anything. It's just like a, a, just a brain dump. Like you're just having a conversation with your buddy. It's like, what do you think of blue white? Oh yeah. I think that that's pretty good. Like I'd probably run the, the version with, with Gideon and Avicen. I think it's probably where you want to be. And you know, like, it's you're probably talking about, like, where you want to be. I love it. And, but that's like, that's the kind of conversation that the article is. Right. Um, so, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's bad. So I, I I agree. I mean, I can see the point. Like, it's just something needs to change, and I, I'm interested to. It has my gears thinking. I think uh, maybe I'm going to take a stab at something. I kind of have an idea on the on the back burner here. <laughs> and you know, you know what's really you you put it very well when you said that they're really good articles for the people who are like trying to move from level three to level five, and not the people who are at like level seven who want to be tens. Um, but when you go behind a paywall and you talk about the articles again, not being appropriate for teaching, but if you were behind a paywall and that was actually where your income was derived from, not the sales of cards, then you wouldn't have to be as clickbaity and you could move yeah. away from these authors who are un again, unquestionably the best players, but not the best writers. And there's so many amazing writers out there who are not the best players. They're, they're past their prime or, you know, their gift is in writing and, and teaching and not necessarily playing the game. So they don't have the results that generate the clicks, but they have a lot to say. And I can think of, you know, go back into the past, a good friend of mine at KYT's, Mike Flores, doesn't do much in terms of results anymore. Sorry, Mike, you don't. I love you. But, Man, he listens to this show. He listens. He yes. listens. I would say, Mike knows I would happily trash his results for his face. But there was a time where he was great and he's still a great mind for the game. He still has a lot to offer. Oh no! Perspective, a great theorist, even if he doesn't have the current results. And I think if you were to, and Mike's probably going to be furious. I'm saying this, but if you were to put like his name up with an article and Seth Manfield's name up with an article, a lot more people are going to click on Seth's name than Mike's name, and that's that's just the truth. But for someone like me, I know that Mike has a lot more to offer me, and I would get a lot more hearing his thoughts about the game, even if they're not necessarily most temporally relevant he still has that huge theoretical base to work off of so if you were to move away from this card sales model as, as your profit model a lot of these guys come back into the forefront and uh start contributing i don't know i, I, I unless you do it i don't think we're going to see it happen rob but uh i would love to see it happen i would love to see a new higher level of magic content out there i'm at least going to try something and then <laughs> we'll see if someone else can take the torch <laughs> <laughs> Another project for KYT. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's too many of these projects. That, <laughs> but I just start and just like screw off. But I, I'm not going to. Th this is a podcast that, that I'm, I'm going to stick for the long run. Uh, to make sure I know who's still in the, in the current chat in the live stream for the uh, $25, just, uh, I'll just do a quick little poll. How much would you be willing to pay per hour, just for the question for the chat, for someone to coach you, like a high-level player that's also that's a, good, a good coach, let's say an hour of Alex Haynes' time, would you be able to? Would you be willing to pay him to, you know, maybe go through a seal with you, go through constructed, go through sideboarding? Let's say you have an upcoming tournament, you want to know how to approach every single different matchup. How much would you be willing to pay? Yeah. 
So to wrap up, the last topic comes from Stephen Tran. It's um, how we all have, um, now that the, G, the new GP changes with the heavier top end uh, prize structure, with the six and threes making it to day two, after this whole year, and you know, Robert, you've, you've had a great GP year. So how has, have you liked those changes? Have they mattered to you? Because you've been winning so much, like, does it even matter? The 6-3 ever matter to you? Like, you know, maybe it doesn't. Like, maybe you haven't had to ponder this question. So, yeah, 6-3 does not matter to me. <laughs> if it was 2016 anyways. I mean, my 2015 GP year was, was okay, too. Um, I think that the changes are good. I think they went over – they were very well received by the community. Um, there was about, if I remember correctly, like – 1500 person GP maybe put like 175 to 200 people into day two and now it's putting like somewhere between four and 500 into day two so it's like more than doubling the amount of people that get to experience day two and since there's like less GPS uh, now than there were in previous years I think they cut down to like 40 from like 50 some odd uh, in previous years that people are like making it more like an excursion to go out there to the event and you get a lot of more casuals that are traveling as well to GPs because it's more like an experience. They bring in a whole bunch of artists. Now people are cosplaying. There's lots of like side events and stuff on, on like the Fridays. Um, and there's a lot of stuff to do on the Sundays. So that encourages people to like come and play that, that are casual competitive or even very casual to play. Cause they actually have a hope of making day two now where it's like almost impossible to make day two for these people at seven and two. Um, considering, like, you know, they're very excited to get in at six and three. So I think it's completely fine to give these people kind of what they pay for. Like, they're not really stealing money from the pot because it's very hard for them to actually win anything. And Wizards purposefully set it up this way where it's like, you can make day two at six three now, um, but you basically need to XO to be able to prize. And if, like, you XO your day two, then, yeah, I think you probably, you know, you do deserve whatever kind of scraps you're you're left with, right? And the prize is all very top-heavy. So the people that entered at X1 and X2 and X, you know, if you're lucky enough, XO or whatever, then they're going to be getting the bulk of the prize anyways and not the people that are at X3. They're just there to, like, have some bragging rights, get some better, you know, better experience playing with definitely better players throughout the day. Like, if you come in at X3, like, you might actually play – like a known pro on day two, right? And this could be like the highlight of someone's uh, magic career at that point. Like, oh, can you believe it? Like I was X5 in round uh, in round 13 and I got to play against Reed Duke. Like it was, it was insane. And like the odds of them playing against Reed Duke in the early rounds of the tournament are like very unlikely because these are the type of people that are like going to get one loss every three rounds or so, right? So it, you know, these players are known to do well throughout day one. It's easier for them to do well in day one. So, yeah, I, I think it's totally fine. I'm, I'm very happy, obviously, since I won a GP, that the, the prize is top heavy <laughs> now. <laughs> and I'm totally satisfied with, um, you know, extending day two to all of these other casual competitive and people that are, like, up and coming to kind of give them the experience and, and you know, let them have some fun too. Like, they're not really doing any harm, uh, you know, to the tournament structure or like it's pacing really anyways. So, you know. I guess I mostly agree. I mean, they're not doing any harm, but it's like, are we just going to keep moving the goalpost closer so everyone can feel good? I mean, like, why not five and four? Why not just let everyone play the entire tournament, right? Why not just run two days of, of the tournament and you just get to keep playing until you don't want to play anymore? I mean, the argument is that 
day twos are special, so we want more people to experience that. But as you let more people experience a day two, it becomes less special. Like it used to feel, I remember my first day two of a draft tournament felt really cool. It was like, there's only like 10 tables of us left, or maybe there was like 12 tables, but we were in a sectioned off in a little area and we got to draft around round tables because it was such a small tournament at that point. And it felt really unique and special. I, I'm not sure if the same feeling is still there or if I'm just jaded, which is I totally concede is a possibility that I've just seen enough GPs now and I've had enough day twos and done well enough that it, that's not where my point of excitement is. And this is just a total net positive for the casual player who making day two means the world. But I am worried about just continually downgrading the goals because it, all the lines are arbitrary, right? Like you could have, it could be that you need to go eight one to make a day two of a GP. And, but that's not it. We set it at seven two initially, and now we're down to six three. And it's still an arbitrary line. We could, we could make it five four if we wanted to. We could make it four or five if we wanted to. All, all these things are plausible because the numbers are already swollen. Like I, I think if you're going to make the argument that you want to make day two easier to run, we're already past that point. Like having 600 people in a limited day two. You didn't make the date easy to run. It's very complicated and very large at that point. It's the size that limited GPs used to be on the whole, you know? So um, I think that argument's out the window. It's already complicated to run a day two. Um, also, to your point, you talked about how these GPs now have much more on, in the way of experiences. There's artists and there's cosplayers and there's all these other tournaments. So go do that. You don't have to be involved in the GP to, to get your money's worth. You can be doing these other things that Wizards has expanded um you know their offerings to include so i i i know i like i'm rattling off a bunch of reasons why i hate it i i don't actually hate it it's fine like i understand that this is meaningful to some people and i want people to have the best experience and probably more people are having the best experience because they're allowed into day two but you you can't keep moving the goal close closer you have to you have to stop and making day two has to be difficult so I would have left it at 7-2. Um, I understand why it's 6-3. I, it should never go to 5-4. Oh, That's I completely I agree that it, would, it shouldn't go to 5-4. So I, I think there's well, some... You see it's just arbitrary. It's not like... There's not really... No, no, it's, it's not arbitrary. Right? It's not arbitrary. I'll explain to you why it's not arbitrary. At 6-3, and three, that's the lowest... The worst day one record that you can enter day two in so that right, if right. you have a winning record on day mm-hmm. two, you're eligible for... Or no, you're guaranteed a pro point. So yeah. like... You have to do better than break even on day two to get a pro point. So I think that's why it, it both like it makes sense why it's six three and not five four mm-hmm. because five four meaning you'd ha- if you had a winning record you still get nothing. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> I went four two on day two. You know I was above fifty percent, but I still I don't get a pro point. I get nothing. <laughs> it's like yeah, that's that's useless, right? But they could go from seven two to six three, so that let a bunch more people into day two. And then if those people have a winning record on day two, they do come away with something, right? They get a pro point, so now they're considered a pro, <laughs> you know, in, in maybe like in their inner circle or whatever, right? So like that means something to some people. I was excited about my first pro point for sure. I, I was I was thrilled when I had my first pro point. So there you go. Now 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 here you are. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I'm an asshole. It's funny how things change. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh man. So uh, we. We're going to wrap this up uh, because we, we've actually gone a bit over, but it was a fun, it was a fun cast and uh, got a lot of thoughts.
Got, uh, to sum up our poll results, a lot of people said roughly the 20 some people said $20 for an hour coaching, $25. We're seeing $35. We've seen Frank Richard with $100 an hour, but that's because he knows Alex personally, and he could probably get that easily. And, and Doug Strong says, I'm not getting out of bed for less than $30 an hour on my end. And I think, I think that's – I think because it's, it's one of those things, because the industry hasn't set any precedent, it's just hard to, to see paying that much, whereas in other games like – Again, poker or even a chess coach to improve your chess. Like being better at chess does not necessarily make you more money. Um, definitely, even people that are not the best in the world, uh, you're going to have to pay more than fifty an hour for. And uh, and Alex is one of the best in the world. And but it's just hard to see. Like there's no precedent, and it's hard to see if they could actually improve your play. You don't. There's no coach out there that says, "Oh, these are my students, and all of them have." top eight of the GP after whatever, X hours of coaching with me. And uh, although I've had pri private combos with Alex and Alex was willing to, to make a, like his money back guarantee would be, you would make your money back in GPs within a year or something. So I was like, well, that's probably, that's probably too bold. That's probably too bold. I mean, they did have to actually play the GPs themselves. Um, so the winner of our giveaways uh, for tonight, uh, I decided to be nice and, and throw in a second one. First one goes to Chris Ha. So if you don't have a facefacegames.com account create, create it and uh, message me on Facebook or send me an email at KYT at manofprive.com. And the second winner, I randomized from the people who answered the poll, is Frank Richard, man. You got yourself $25 store credit. Um, at some point, um, and hopefully everyone else can still support the channel by either subscribing or uh, hitting that thumbs up button on this video if you enjoyed everything we've talked about. At some point, I will be creating, just like these other content creators, a, a Patreon for the First Strike podcast. But uh, more importantly is if people have any input as to what Rob, Brian, Doug, um, Dagger4, um, the rest of us could provide in terms of exclusive content. What I don't like about other places that have a Patreon is that a lot of the content is exclusive, but you have to, like, it's like access behind the Patreon wall, but, like, who who's actually going to go there to check out like behind the scenes or, or me and Rob swearing before the show. Is that actually content people care about? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. But There's maybe a lot of cursing. If that's something you're in, I can definitely make you pay for it. If you want. <laughs> I, I mean, it would be interesting if we did like a Q and a show for only Patreon questions and we actually answer them. And we did this before, after the show. And then, we're, but we don't, I don't feel like we should be releasing it through like a separate link. People want things like, if they're getting something exclusive, I don't want them to, like, have to access it via desktop. It should be, like, easy accessible. So that that's the trouble with all this extra Patreon content, I find. So uh, we'll think about it. And if you guys have ideas, drop them in the YouTube link or on the manddeprived.com uh, page for the podcast episode that will be published uh, in the morning, like, next morning. So thanks, Brian. Thanks, Rob. It was an awesome episode. And, uh, yeah, chime in on everything we talked about. What could make a premium site for you and how much would you be willing to pay for coaching? Things I really want to know your opinion on. So we'll see you guys next week.